0: This is The Dish, the Medical Laboratory Professionals Association of Ontario's podcast. From myths about how antibodies work to misconceptions about PCR, there are so many questions we have right now about vaccines, testing, and more. MLPAO CEO Michelle Hode sat down with a panel of experts to discuss all of this in depth. She spoke with Dr. Zane Chagla, infectious diseases physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton. Dr. Rowdy Rohde, who is a professor and chair for the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at Texas State University, MLT Candy Rutherford, who is a technical specialist in molecular microbiology at Hamilton Health Sciences, and microbiologist and science educator Jason Tetro to clear up some of the questions, misinformation, and inaccurate science around COVID-19 vaccines and laboratory testing.
1: Thanks everybody for joining, and we are coming together with a panel of uh, experts to talk about some of the myths that have come about uh, with COVID.
2: Hi, yes, I'm Jason Tetro. I've been a longtime microbiologist and immunologist. Um, I also have a public uh, figure name as the germ guy. I didn't make it, someone else gave it to me. And I have written two best-selling books, The Germ Code, The Germ Files, and I have a, a podcast, Canadian um, award-winning podcast called The Super Awesome Science Show.
3: Hi, I'm Rodney Rody. Uh, I also have a long career in microbiology and infectious disease, uh, molecular diagnostics as well, and about a decade in public health that has continued for many years as well. So I'm the chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program in, in Texas State University, also sometimes called medical laboratory scientist. I've been doing that for about 20 years. And like Jason, I have a couple of books uh, based on my research expertise, which is rabies. I have a new book, uh, Clinical Considerations of Rabies, as well as uh, MRSA, which is antibiotic resistant staph aureus. And pretty passionate about science communication like Jason. So that's kind of where my passion is these days.
4: My name is Abe Chagla. I'm an infectious disease physician uh, and uh, one of the medical directors of infection control at St. Joe's. I also do infection control at a couple of other health systems uh, and have uh, obviously an interest in COVID-19, given that that's become a significant part of what clinical practice has been. Everything from uh, appropriate use of testing to epidemiology to vaccinations. I've done a number of clinical trials for therapeutics um, and, uh, and helped with local and, and provincial and some federal policy around uh, some of these topics too. So very happy to be here
5: tonight. I'm Candy, and I'm the Technical Specialist for Molecular Microbiology and Virology at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. And I've been doing microbiology for 49 years. And virology for 20. Real keen on the, the subject, I guess. Um, we got, kind of got stuck with COVID. It uh, wasn't really <laughs> our first desire,
1: but there it was. So I invent <laughs> diagnostic assays. So I hear this everywhere. My immune system is super strong. I'd rather just fight it out and get it. That, that gives me a reason that I don't need the vaccine. Thoughts?
2: Hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll, I'll just give a bit of a start here. Um, I mean, the immune system is only as good as its ability to recognize and fight a pathogen. And without memory, you know, it can take up to three weeks to develop any kind of response. And, you know, most of the time when we look at the immune system, we see different stages. So, you know, the first one, the immediate one is called the innate response. It's sometimes okay, not usually. It kind of has to go on for about seven days before you get an antibody and what we call a T cell adaptive or cellular response. What's really interesting is that for the majority of people who have nice, strong immune systems, that means that you kind of feel crappy for about a week and then, you know, you get better. Um, the problem is, is that when you're dealing with something you've never seen before, you really don't know if your immune system is going to be strong enough or not. However, in the case of a vaccinated person, as we have seen through the trials, we know that, yes, the innate is immediate, but the antibody response is immediate. And the adaptive response, well, that takes less than two days. And you can actually end up clearing the virus in as little as a few days or less. So the reason that's important is the fact that you know, When you start looking at the amount of time that it's going to take for you to be able to fight something off, when you're dealing with a virus that's rapidly multiplying inside of you, especially with something like the Delta, you may end up finding yourself losing the race between your immune system and the virus. So why not give yourself that extra power boost, as we like to call it, and get that vaccine to make sure that your immune system has the memory to be able to fight right away instead of trying to figure out how to learn first.
4: And, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on a point from, from Jason there. You know, I, I think at the beginning of this in, in kind of February and in March of 2020, when we were dealing with the original COVID virus, you know, the, the variant that had come out of uh, Wuhan, China, you know, there were certain characteristics. There were people with major medical issues. There were people that were of, of a certain age that really suffered from the most complications from this you know, that myth has kind of stayed through COVID-19. And as we saw the Alpha variant and now the Delta variant, there is, you know, certainly those risk factors are still there. If you have multiple medical conditions or of a certain age, your risk of hospitalization is, is higher than it's ever been before during this pandemic. But the average healthy person isn't totally escaped from this, right? And yes, a good number will do okay you know I, I don't think we can we can say that this is a virus that, that doesn't spare a lot of people it does but the number of people that are de- developing these severe complications needing hospitalization needing ventilator states, going on life support is more than we've ever seen during this pandemic and the spectrum of people that we're seeing now you know again healthy individuals athletes young people with good immune systems you know, people that we would never see in the hospital on a ventilator are sitting on a ventilator in our ICU, and yes, they may survive because they're young, but they're not walking out of here completely well from it, right? So, you know, I think that myth of my immune system can fight this off, I'll be flying, um, really doesn't keep going along here, right? You know, you're the 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 reality of the situation is. All the vaccines are is they just give your immune system a head start, that's it. They just prime your immune system to say, I've seen this before. There's not, no other magic here in terms of immunization. It's just using the pathways that you have in your body to, to get things you know up up to snuff before you actually see the pathogen. So you know, again, the, the best way to deal with COVID-19 before you've been exposed is to get immunity. And the best way to get immunity without having to deal with the disease and the complications is to get a vaccine more than anything else.
3: I totally agree with echo both of my colleagues comments and just to keep mine short because I echo everything they say is when I talk about this in kind of plain language with people because I get this sometimes. I often comment about you know no no police officer, no military person would go into a battle without a bulletproof vest even if they knew they had bullets that would penetrate that vest. It's all about risk reduction a vaccine is risk reduction the global evidence from the last century has shown that again and again and why would you take that chance why do you get in a car and buckle up i mean it's just risk reduction it makes no sense uh, to go into a battle without every piece of arsenal you can have at your at your at your face i just don't understand why people don't do that
1: Okay. So that leads into our second question nicely, but why would I take it when it hasn't been approved? Cause it's only a test vaccine. Mm-hmm. So we've heard this everywhere. I've heard it
4: mm-hmm.
1: everywhere. So, you know what, I would really like the Canadian American perspective on this. That's why we've got this panel. So I thought mm-hmm. maybe let's start American perspective. Like when you hear that, you know, what does, how, what does that mean to you?
3: Well, what I generally tell folks, this is Rodney again, talking about the perspective of of the vaccine not being approved is that all vaccines go through clinical trials. And you know generally the question comes up, well, why did this happen so quickly? That con- conversation kind of tends to go down that road that it happened really quickly. And yes, it did, but it's not because it happened overnight. Um, SARS viruses, especially the, the key ones we know about from SARS-1 and, and MERS later in 2012, and this the first one going back to 2002, Research was already underway. Um, You can look this up. It's about 20 years almost going backwards, looking at research around these vaccines. And really what happened in the 18 month, the quick turnaround of this was that at least from the standpoint of Operation Warp Speed to approve a lot of these pushed through not any issues around safety concerns or anything like that, but basically helped to get the bureaucratic paperwork out of the way and to push that through quicker. That was a great thing actually uh, at the beginning of this pandemic in my professional opinion that actually has helped. And so in a sense, this is, this is research and clinical trials and, and my colleagues can correct me but I think there's probably been more clinical trial data and more numbers of people uh, that have been studied and put through this than probably any vaccine prior. So in, in reality, it's a very well studied vaccine. And as we know now, Pfizer is approved for those over 12 probably going to be approved for younger ages any day now. Uh, And I expect Moderna uh, and uh, J&J, which are EUA, will also be approved in in the coming weeks. So all the right things were done. And so it's it's just a myth. Uh, And again, you can look this up and follow the information and it's there.
2: How about from a Canadian perspective? Well, well first of all, I, I just want to say that it has been approved. Um, that's why we have to uh, actually say the weird names that they came up with. Right. Uh, Comirnaty, uh, Vaxivia, and of course, my favorite, Spikevax. Spikevax Spike, Vax, Spike Vax to the max. <laughs> I mean, Moderna wins in the name game. But still, look, I actually interviewed on my show the person who came up with the dev- the, the initial start for the delivery system of the mRNA vaccines. His name's Peter Cullis at the University of British Columbia. He did it in the 1970s. And they've been developing this over the last 40 odd years. And more importantly, the actual technology behind the mRNA vaccines was approved by the FDA in full in 2017 with something called Onpatro. The reality is that it's never been a test vaccine. It's a vaccine that's based on platforms and I know that in the regular world, they don't understand what high throughput means. But for us, what it means is that we have a platform and all we're changing is what we're putting into that platform. And that's one of the reasons why it was so quick. And finally, the reason that it happened so quickly was because they got the dosage right. And that's because they did work in other animal models with other viruses before they did SARS-CoV-2 in primates. The 30 uh, micrograms that you hear uh, in, in, uh, the Pfizer, the commonality or the 100 in the spike vax, that was already known long before SARS-CoV-2 came around. It was just a matter of putting that in there. And now for the children, we've cut that dose and by a third, uh, down to a third for commonality and uh, half for spike vax, and we should see the exact same results.
4: You know, again, the approval process here is, is it's not Trivial, right? To get a drug through Health Canada, to get a drug through the FDA, you know, you have a threshold that is incredibly hard to reach, right? And, um, you know, again, all the phase four data to follow it up, that, that real life data to follow it up. You know, to get a drug fully approved, to get a vaccine fully approved, which Pfizer and, and again, I'm not going to say those names because they're terrible other than Spike Vax, which is kind of cool. Um, uh, you know, I, I there, there, there is such a high bar here. These are people that look through every line of the literature, every side effect, interrogate the drug to the ends of the earth. Their job for Health Canada, the FDA, is not to make money on these products, it's to keep their clients in the United States and in Canada safe. And, uh, and again, this is why they're in arms like the agency away from from governments to really just provide that oversight into drug development and and drug safety. Um, The other part I'll say is, look, look at the last vaccine we have the shingles vaccine, you know, guess what those trials the the trials were longer in the shingles vaccine because it takes 5 10 15 or sometimes zero people don't develop shingles in their lifetime and you have to wait for it to happen you know in July of 2020 when these trials were running unfortunately COVID was a part of our world and people living their normal lives got COVID-19 so it wasn't hard to finish the trial because people got COVID-19 and experienced it because it's been circulating forever you know for 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 all of what, what was 2020 in that sense. So, um, you know, again, that, that, that duration argument really is, is kind of trivial in the sense that, you know, again, you got to your outcome quickly because this was a respiratory virus that was circulating in the general population. This isn't shingles that takes a lifetime sometimes to get. Uh, and so it's very easy to prove efficacy one way or another with these trials because unfortunately COVID is a part of our world. If you did a vaccine trial today, we would get enough patients to enroll because COVID is still a part of our world. And and unfortunately that's that's the situation we were in as these trials were being developed. Okay, awesome. So
1: I'm gonna go on to sort of the next topic. And I'm just, there were three questions that are all talking about DNA. So I'm gonna try to see if I can combine them. So some of the questions were, some of the beliefs are that the vaccine will change your DNA that there are 5G microchips being inserted into our bodies. And then the other question that came around that is there is also a belief that the vaccine is a high risk of being incorporated into our DNA and then being passed on to future generations, which is leading to infertility
2: and
4: autoimmune diseases. Who wants to take 5G? <laughs> no one? Okay. Uh, I was just. I don't, I don't know. I was going to say
2: that Ryan Reynolds definitely helped us along with that one, because when he got his first vaccination dose, he actually said, I've now got my 5G. Um, The the problem is, is that when you hear the term nanoparticle, and this has been going on for 20 years, because I've been involved in using uh, nanoparticles, quantum dots, all of these things, people somehow figure that there is a, you know, an agenda to actually get something inside of us. And whether it's a lipid nanoparticle, or if it's a a sugar nanoparticle or something, it's always a biological. But for some reason, they always think that it's, you know, something from a sci-fi movie that's made from silicon, and it's it's not. Um, So I can understand why people would start thinking this, because this has been 20 years in the making. But what the real concern I find happens to be is that when this is injected inside of you, because we're using terminologies that have already been so um, you know, maligned, if you will, through public uh, d- discourse, that they will automatically do the association. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, the, the vaccines are basically fat, protein, water, some genetic material, and maybe salt. That, that's basically all it is. But unless you can actually show them what is going on when that mixture goes inside of the body, it makes it very difficult for some of these people to get their minds out of the Blade Runner and into the, you know, run and go get your vaccine, please. Yeah, Yeah,
4: sorry. The one thing I'll say is, you know, that 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 game it seems scary but you know th- th- we have processes that happen every day in every living being that involve mrna it makes us you know from the moment of conception to the day we die we're generating mrna you know in, in, in millions and millions and millions of molecule, molecules to make the proteins we make our body is very well trained to deal with rna the reason because we use it this is a part of our system. This is how we we function. It's the message to how to make our proteins that make our skeletons, that make our cells alive, that make everything to do with us. And so if our body didn't have the ability to process RNA correctly, we would be screwed from the moment life existed, right? If RNA could somehow go back into our DNA uh, and you know, change our DNA fundamentally, it, life as we know it would not exist because again, that that pathway of DNA to RNA to protein is how we live. And again, how we make all the proteins in our body. Uh, So, you know, again, these these terms seem scary. Uh, The reality of the situation is all we are doing is augmenting a pathway that our body uses every day. We ingest RNA every day with all the foods we eat. You know, this is a molecule we see more than we know. Uh, and again no one really knew about what the term meant until you know uh, this year when we used them in in uh, in vaccines
1: so we're going to take a just a little t- a turn and we're going to talk about testing testing my fave so um, so let's start with candy i'm going to ask you if you have seen because it has been sent to me about 50 times there is a YouTube video of um, a doctor who is stating that the PCR test was not invented for pandemic use. Have you
4: seen it?
5: Oh, yeah. 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 Um, Anything that starts with share the S out of this is probably not really science.
4: You seem very impressed, Candy.
5: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, <laughs> bit of a loose cannon, that one. I, I think more interested in his social media numbers than science. Mm. That would be my opinion.
2: Yes. Um, But there is one way that we can, uh, if I may use the word, sorry, Rodney, Trump, Uh this guy. And that is, I knew Kerry Mullis. I was actually working with him on an application to do some research about 10 years ago. And we had this chat about, because it was 2009, pandemic. And the whole thing comes down to one very, very simple. And, and I'm, maybe I'll just pull the group. When we do a PCR test, does it actually tell us presence or does it tell us viability? Presence. Rodney. Presence. Thank you. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, is that what they've done is they've mutated that into saying, well, then it's not designed for a pandemic. But at the end of the day, if you have, you know, a CT that's 20 or under, that means you got a load of DNA or RNA in there, which means that there's probably a viable virus going on in there because many of us don't have 10,000 PFU per mil just sitting there going. Mm-hmm. So as a result of that, we can use this for a pandemic, even though the test itself was never meant for viability.
1: Okay, so I'm just going to give you guys, I just want to remind us that the people that are gonna to listen to this don't understand probably half of the things you just said. So, oh. <laughs> so it, and I, like I'm saying that just truthfully because when people ask me, well, what is, what do they exactly do? So Candy, mm-hmm. can, you, can you explain in very simple terms when someone says, someone was to ask like, so what happens to my specimen when it goes into the lab? Like, what is the PCR test actually doing? Can you just yep. really yeah. simplify I, I,
5: it? Yeah, I can give you a sort of an analogy. I had to think about it really a long time because there's no pictures here. Um, so let's say you go to the bank machine and you want some money and you put your driver's license in. Are you going to get any money? No, you're not. The bank is going to say, I don't know who you are, go away. That could be construed as the primers that are in PCR. PCR has two primers and a probe. So let's say you do manage to put your bank card in the ATM. The bank's going to go, okay, great. Tell us what your PIN number is. The PIN number is the probe. That specifically identifies you, that PIN number. And the bank is going to give you money. The probe in PCR tests, TACMAN assays especially, is extremely specific for the little tiny piece of DNA that the primers make. So the primers bind to the virus. They make a little piece in between. The probe sticks to it. When the probe falls off during the next round of cycling, then you get fluorescence, you light it up, you see it on a machine. It's really simple.
1: Okay, Okay, that's great. That's good. That's like fantastic. Um, While we're talking about PCR testing, um, does PCR testing provide false positives? And if so, why? Any test in a laboratory can provide a false positive
5: or a false negative. That's why we do so much external quality assessment, performance testing, we run so many controls and it, it's entirely possible for any laboratory test to be a false positive or a false negative. The trick is to put enough safeguards in place to prevent this from happening on any kind of recurring basis. So that is our aim in life. We get tested every two months by IQMH, which is our governing body in Ontario. We get tested every three months by the National Microbiology Laboratory. And we do uh, extensive panels that we get from Scotland. So, you know, I think all the labs in Ontario for sure are doing everything they darn well can to make sure that everything they send out is right.
4: And yeah, so not- maybe I, I can take it a step back here, right? Because, you know, the, what, what triggers testing is a clinical assessment. So someone, a provider, looks at a patient and says, I think we need to diagnose COVID-19. And, and in everyone's head, you know, there is what we call a pretest probability. So what in my head do I think is the odds of this person having COVID-19 based on the symptoms, the situation, the circumstance, Right. If I'm swabbing someone off the street uh, and uh, you know they're totally fine, clearly, if they get a positive test, I'm going to be scratching my head and saying, well, maybe this wasn't right or there was a lab error or a false positive result. If I'm walking into an ICU with someone that's feverish, coughing and having difficulty breathing that needs a ventilator who's been exposed to COVID-19 and they get their test, That's not a false positive, right? You know, in my mind, that person has COVID 19, the test is positive. That's not a false positive. I think that's part of the misinformation out there is that, you know, people are then equating to the fact that, yes, we can get false positives, but that doesn't mean every test is a false positive. That means that, yes, those low probability tests sometimes, you know, we get false positives from or old positives because we know this virus unfortunately. Uh, Even after, you know, people are recovered, they shed, you know, little bits of the viral nucleic acids and that gets picked up on testing, you know, a little bit longer than their disease actually settles out. But, you know, again, you know, we deal with false positives and false negatives and, you know, test characteristics in medicine all the time. That's how we make our clinical decisions in terms of when to send a test uh, and how to interpret it when you get back. It's not necessarily a positive means. They must have it. But that reality has morphed into every positive test is a false positive. And again, that's not the circumstance. If the patient looks like they have COVID-19 and they get a positive test. They probably have COVID-19 until proven otherwise.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because um, one analogy I like to use when I hear that is I say in the regular world of testing, like if I'm a patient and I don't feel well and my my blood test goes in to see if I have an infection. What are the chances that it's going to come out as a false positive? Probably not. Like if I've infected, you're going to see I'm infected. So I think even when we make it even more simpler, which is like 284 million lab tests are done every year in the province of Ontario. And that is on the low end. And there is so much integrity and infrastructure to ensure that the quality of those tests are a accurate and be precise. So we shouldn't think otherwise, if there's been a new testing method that's been introduced because COVID isn't going to be the last test that comes in. There's new tests that are introduced all the time. So, yeah. okay, great. Um, sorry. Anything else?
3: I was just going to mention, I would back up everything that's been said and, and it really gets down to trust and credibility. And I think You know, for the audience that's sitting here and listening to all of our our jargon and some of the scientific language we're using, it really comes down to that testing, trust and credibility. I know um, Candy and Michelle know all about the rigor that our professionals go through just in their training and education. Uh, We don't go into this to try to provide false results. We go into it to try to create the best possible diagnosis with clinical syndromes and symptoms. And and just like vaccination, no test is 100% accurate every single time, but it's it's in the very high 90s most of the time. And so you have to go into it with that mindset. Can you occasionally have a false positive or negative? Absolutely. Does it happen all the time? Absolutely not. It's, It's actually a very rare thing. And, and, you know, it's just something that we need to keep in mind that whether it's the FDA looking at vaccines or Health Canada or CAP or ASCP or any of the other organizations that monitor our professional credentials and how we look at testing platforms and and how Candy was talking about just all of those internal and external checks on this information is, it, it would be very, it would be very, um, Implausible to say that you're seeing a lot of high false positives or negatives.
2: Yeah, and I just want to add one other thing. And I mean, Candy, you can sort of talk to this as well. Um, before a test even is approved, there are two things that you're going to need. One is a proficiency panel. Now, that's jargon, but basically what it means is we send it out to a whole bunch of people with um, unknown samples, and then we wait to see what the results come back with. And you have to meet a certain level, a threshold of, you know, accuracy across the whole um, different uh, testing that goes on in different locations. But there's also an algorithm. And I did this for HIV. um, Because if you got a positive HIV test, you just ruined someone's life. This was in the early 90s, right? We didn't have heart or anything like that. So we had an algorithm to be absolutely sure that we had it. So where there was usually other tests that were accompanying with the PCR test to be absolutely sure. But I think that's the other thing is that when we hear about this idea of false positives, we already are working even before we release the test to anticipate how we can deal with that.
5: And we do that actually. We have three different test modalities um, for that very reason. For if there's Mm -hmm. anything that we doubt, we fire up the next one.
1: Okay, so I'm gonna, let's do one more testing question. And I wanna make this, I wanna, I wanna talk about this one in sort of like the everyday traveler. So I've received say many, many texts from friends wanting to know why and what the difference is between a PCR test and a rapid antigen test. And the reason I say that is because when you travel outside of Canada, you need a PCR test to get on a plane, which is a nice cheap $180. Mm-hmm. And then when you land in the US and you come back, they are actually allowing you to use a rapid antigen test to get on a plane for all of $40. So just for the everyday person, because the question keeps coming now, why aren't these tests available to you every day? They're doing them in schools. What is the core difference between those two tests?
5: Antigen tests detect the virus antigen in your system. So there's antibodies on the strip. It's much like a pregnancy test. That's what they look like they are probably a reasonable thing in communal settings with a high pretest probability of positivity. So if there's like a lot of COVID in um, say a detention center or someplace like that and it's a communal living thing and they test frequently enough, yeah they're probably a pretty good test. They're probably 80 to 90 percent um, sensitive. If on the other hand you have people who have no symptoms and there's not much in the community and they really haven't come in contact with anybody your pretest test probability of of you having it is really low and then the antigen test kind of drops off into the sort of 50 to 60 percent sensitivity range PCR is exquisitely sensitive that's why it picks up the virus long after you've got better because you keep shedding dead virus so we can we can pick that up and we can actually tell to a certain degree um, if it's always the same test that's been done on that same patient all along that they're getting better. Um, and eventually they just stop shedding and, and it's all good. Um, but why different countries do it differently is not my soapbox. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. But that's the difference between the antigen test and the PCR test. The PCR test detects the virus, the actual viral nucleic acid, which is RNA. And um, even dead, there's going to be RNA floating around because your body, your white cells have chewed on it. And so they, there's these little bits of RNA floating around and it's possible to pick it up later when you're just getting better.
3: The only piece I would add to that is because I get that question to a lot, uh, Candy, and, and sometimes I'll get asked about the question of the kind of over-the-counter tests that are out. And so as Michelle knows, I'll often try to talk about that in the sense that so much can go wrong with the specimen acquisition portion of that test. And so I'll often try to describe that, again, to a person that may not understand everything you just said is is absolutely accurate. But sometimes I'll even bring in the problem of, you know, do you read what you do with the disinfectant in your home. So did you know that there's certain dwell times that you put Lysol down on the counter and you're supposed to let it sit there? Nobody does that correctly, right? If we're all honest, except Jason. I mean, the germ guy always does it, right? <laughs> right? But many of us don't really read that really carefully. So if you're doing that at home, you, know, you may only let it sit there for a certain amount of time. So the same thing with a swab in your nose or your mouth, you may not do it for 20 seconds in the back of your nose or in all the areas you're supposed to do it. You may not do it around the bottom of your tongue and around in your mouth and, and all these things. And so all that can lead to uh, sensitivity and specificity issues with those kind of over-the-counter tests. Um, and so that's another factor to consider when you think of rapid testing. I do say, however, uh, as someone who's been in public health a long time prior to, to the medical lab, is they are invaluable as a screening tool. Uh, And we always typically want to confirm that really even one of the most accurate antigen tests we know, the pregnancy test, you're probably going to go to the doctor and say, is this real? And, you know, and they may do some other testing and that's called a confirmatory test. So PCR is often the confirmatory to a screen uh, for all the reasons we know. They're more costly. You know, it takes a little more expertise. And so antigen tests are a little uh, quicker, uh, a little easier to run. But they can be problematic if you're not careful with how you're setting that up.
1: Okay, we're gonna uh, we're gonna shift back and talk a little bit more about vaccines, and I just want to be you know respectful of everybody's time. So um, we were just talking about shedding. So there is a myth that when you get the vaccine, you are shedding the virus, and that there are those people. are unvaccinated that would prefer not to be around people that just got the vaccine because the virus is shedding and they're going to get the virus. So I'm just going to put that out to you and let me know what your thoughts are.
2: Look when you're dealing with a vaccine um, there's one thing that it's always going to have going and that is it is either attenuated or it's incapable of replicating or it's dead or it's broken up into pieces or it's a piece of genetic material that's gonna create one protein and nothing more. There is absolutely nothing that is provided for the vaccine for COVID-19 and a number of other uh, pathogens where it can actually create more of that particular pathogen. And so when people are concerned that you are creating a vaccine that is going to lead to you shedding a virus, the first thing you ha- simply say is, well, that's impossible. And I think that's one of the few times where you can actually be that direct, you can be that determinant because we just don't make vaccines that can replicate anymore. And more importantly, we also don't make vaccines that could help other viruses to replicate inside of you. And that goes back a number of decades Uh, But I think that's also something that needs to be said.
3: It it is truly a matter of why would a pharmaceutical company do such a thing? I mean, it's, it makes no sense to create something in which you're shedding virus so that other people get sick. Um, And and it, I mean, it comes down to, again, I think, again, this is just a trust and understanding the expertise around the, the data that's right there and you can find this and look at it. And so, there's absolutely no truth to that. You can definitely say that in the way Jason just said it. And it's really a matter of, of a person trusting the process and understanding what pharmaceutical and others are trying to do. And that's to save lives, not create more infections. That's it. I mean, I've had that question asked me so many times and it's so frustrating. And I know the doc here sitting here is shaking his head too. I mean, it is so frustrating, uh, If I woke up every if I woke up every day and felt that that kind of behavior was going on in any product, why get up and go to work? I mean, it's just it's a matter of trust. And I trust scientists and researchers to do the right thing. The only time you might see something like that is if somebody had the infection, they got the vaccine at the same time and they might be shedding some virus you know, in a theoretical way, that's about the only time you would see something like that happening, not from the vaccine, but an actual infection.
1: It's actually becoming a, it's, you know, I think you guys have all heard the dissension it's causing amongst families and
3: relationships and like my own family. I mean,
1: and friendships, like friendships that are, you know, being destroyed because there's misinformation around what happens. And I think that's why this type of you know, sharing of information hopefully will help Mm -hmm. someone. So um, let's go with one more wacky one and then we'll wrap it up with two. So um, there was actually an article in a paper that said that one of the theories going around was around the expiry date of vaccinations. And if, let's hypothetically say, so today's October 6th, if I got a vaccine that had an expiry date of October 6th, but it was given to me september 30th and it's in my body that when it gets to the 6th it's <laughs> expired
5: uh. so no grasp uh, you know, whatsoever about how vaccines work
1: <laughs> yeah because the, the same theory would be well if you're drinking milk last week and it expires this week, does that mean when it's in your system? It's, so, you know, I just, I wanted to put it out there because there's people, and I think there's this this, there's been so much in the media around expiry dates and what's that mean? And I think it's caused all this information that we shouldn't be taking a vaccine if it's close to its expiry date. So just some thoughts on that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the things that that really has been carried along with the vaccine misinformation is this concept of a vaccine, like a prescription drug, like you take every day, right? Or like a chemotherapeutic agent that, that, you know, has a potency uh, or like an antibiotic that you have to kind of take the right dose for the set amount of time. And yes, if it's expired, you might not get the right dose in that sense. But immunizations fundamentally are a different compound, right? The whole point of an immunization is to turn on your immune system to really, you know, use those networks and pathways within one's own body to make a response. And so... Once that turn on is on, our body is smart, right? You know, we've been fighting pathogens from day one of human and, and life existence in that sense, when, when other forms of life started attacking other forms of life. And, and this is, you know, innate to us, right? Our body knows when they deal with a pathogen to figure out the, the way to deal with it, to set up those innate and adaptive, particularly those adaptive pathways that Jason talked about at the beginning, and to move on. Uh, and so a vaccine does entirely the same thing and so you know again you don't encounter a pathogen that's expired and all of a sudden it's not going to do anything in your system there's no bacteria that expires and your system is totally fine from it Uh, and similarly you know as long as your immune system is triggered the effects of that vaccine have have done what they need to do and there's there's no worries about expiry date at that point there were some you know, where I think this comes from is that earlier, especially with the AstraZeneca and, and Covishield rollout in Canada, there were some doses that were very near expiry. Uh, and, um, you know, there were, you know, legitimate concerns from Health Canada regulatories because those expiry dates before the vaccine is given, you know, is, is where we start questioning kind of how much effective vaccine is there. And, you know, as we give vaccines to people there are so many steps in assurance to make sure that they're getting a working product, that it's been transported correctly, it's been stored correctly, it's been drawn up correctly, uh, and, uh, and similarly, it's prior to expiry date, so there's enough of a product in there. And so that is important. That's what we do in public health and, and medicine to make sure that you know the vaccines have their effects. That's a, a, a product of years and years and years and decades of immunization to make sure that's robust. And so when we started seeing some of these AstraZeneca notices that were going to expire. And and again, we weren't necessarily clear, you know, the health regulators actually reached out to AstraZeneca. They were able to do testing within the lab to say, actually, that the product was still very viable based on uh, multiple studies. And that was why it was used past the expiry date, because they could definitively show that that immune response was still robust even past that date. Um, But, you know, Again, you know, there's no drop dead date once it's in your body, once it's triggered that immune response, you know, our bodies have years and again, adapted to dealing with pathogens to make robust immune responses. And that's really what we're doing with an immunization. And again, that, that's, that's why, you know, once you're immunized, you're immunized, the effects work. And that's why these are such potent medications, because they keep on working, regardless of what you're doing with your life your body is is making antibodies and preparing to deal with this pathogen when the time comes
2: and I I just want to flip this on its head for two seconds because one of the questions that I've ended up getting was well once it's gotten inside of you it's going to produce spike protein for years and it's going to cause your cardiovascular system to crash and the reality is that first off it's only gonna be producing uh, spike protein for about five days, depending on which one um, that you've gotten, And then you're not gonna be able to detect it. And as for the spike protein going into your bloodstream and causing problems, um, we heard one particular researcher in Canada talking about this uh, based on some studies that were done in mice. Um, when, When you look at the levels that were potentially causing problems, They were in the parts per thousands in the blood. And recently, a study for ultrasensitive detection of spike protein in the blood was done, and they found it in the parts per billion. So you are millions of levels of magnitude lower in terms of the amount of spike protein that's actually produced to create what Zane said, that wonderful immune response. So you should also not worry about the uh, vaccine causing you long-term problems um, due to the fact that It's just not gonna be there in five days.
1: Two more questions, maybe three, but let's. I'm gonna combine two. If I get the vaccine, it'll cure my COVID. If you get the vaccine, you won't get COVID. Nope. Okay, so let's start with the first one. If I get the vaccine, it will cure my COVID. Is that true?
2: It's a vaccine, it's not a treatment. A vaccine is preventative. A treatment is therapeutic or reactive. You take a vaccine beforehand. And I understand that this comes from all those people who are facing uh, intubation and crying that they need the vaccine. Now it's not going to work. Then it's not going to work. Now it's never going to work for you. Get the vaccine before you get the virus.
1: I already had COVID and I don't need the vaccine because I have antibodies.
3: I get that question all the time as well. And and kind of that question that comes up is certainly, you know, when you get an infection, a true infection from a natural infection from a virus, you are going to have immunity. You are going to respond and produce a particular type of response with memory and things like that. What we have seen, though, is that that may not mean in a natural infection that your body is producing protection against all the different variants of a virus, for example, that come along after it. So that's one of the reasons, the primary reason that you're continuing to hear people encouraged to get the vaccine, even if they've had the infection, is to provide that more uh, breadth of coverage across all of those variants. And again, I pose the question, uh, it's why wouldn't you? It's risk reduction. Uh, we're seeing people get COVID over and over again. We've seen that. And so why not take a preventative measure like a vaccine, as Jason so eloquently Stated, it's not therapy, it's prevention. And so if you get that vaccine, you lessen your chances of getting COVID again.
4: And I'll, uh, I'll bring it up, you know, and, and I think that's a perfect example, especially as we don't know what's going to happen with this virus if it evades immunity more and more. And I'll give the example of South Africa when they were doing some clinical trials for the AstraZeneca vaccine. They noted a pretty interesting phenomenon is that South African variant, which is probably our most evasive variant and thankfully is now extinct or going extinct from the earth. But they noticed very clearly that when they looked in the groups that were getting the placebo uh, and then got infection from, from COVID-19, there was absolutely no difference between people that had prior COVID-19 right. and people that had never had COVID-19 based on serology. Right. And so that's, you know, again. We don't know what's going to happen. Those folks in South Africa probably thought, hey, you know, I had COVID-19, I'm fine. Uh, The reality of the situation is a variant emerged and and unfortunately that wave did a lot of damage to South Africa as as things progressed. We don't know how this virus is going to evolve, but we do know people who are vaccinated on top of natural infection, those people with so-called hybrid immunity, produce the largest breadth of, of kind of antibodies Produce the highest level of antibodies of anyone out there. And in study after study, you know when you compare people that were naturally infected, people that are vaccinated, and then the bottom in terms of the risk of reinfection are people that are prior infected plus vaccinated, where they derive probably the most protection than anyone in our society from getting reinfected with COVID-19.
2: And there is one other thing, the the vaccines that are approved here in Canada and the United States are based on what is known as a full length pre-fusion spike protein. The reason that's important for you to hear is because they already had thought about variation beforehand and they wanted to make the vaccine, um, create an immune response that looked for the spike protein on the virus, not on your cells. And so if there were any variations, it would be less likely to escape um, than if you were vaccinated with uh, the regular original lineage-looking-like spike protein, and we are seeing that in in some of the uh, in some of the vaccines where they just do not seem to have the ability to stop some of the variants, whereas the prefusion full-length spike does seem to have fairly good uh, protection um, when you're fully vaccinated,
3: of course, right. and 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 really the last thing I'll mention is a virologist too, and I love that extra bit there, Jason, is most virologists will tell you this as a fundamental kind of understanding is that DNA viruses and RNA viruses are kind of different different beasts, right? And so we need to remind our audience that SARS is an RNA virus, much like influenza, much like rabies. I mean, these things are notoriously mutating. There are some of the more advanced mutation tools available to them. They're Segmented, some reassort, some recombine. They just—they have a, a diabolical nature to them uh, in the way that they reassort and recombine. And so, the again, I ask the question: Why not do what you can to avoid this? And and the best measures of risk reduction are vaccination. If you've had COVID, and vaccination, hey, you are you are really primed uh, for protection. So I would encourage you if you've had COVID and you've survived it, outstanding. I'm glad that happened, but you need to go get vaccinated.
1: Um, Does anybody happen to know how many different vaccines there are around the world?
4: I think there's eight by the World Health Organization. There's, I'm not using the the crazy names, but Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Sinovac, uh, Sinopharm, Novavax, Sputnik, which isn't approved yet, but is on the approval pathway. Vaccine from India, which is on the approval pathway. There's a Cuban vaccine that's not approved. Uh I, never mind, I got to 10 with all of that, I think. Does anybody know how many clinical trials have been
1: conducted since the part the start of the pandemic?
2: Oh yeah. So the amount of clinical trials conducted since the start of the pandemic has been for registration 6,705. Out of those, 175 were withdrawn. 151 were terminated and 1,644 have been completed with 677 active. That doesn't actually add up to 6,705. There were a lot of people putting in clinical trials without actually doing anything about it. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. what you want to be doing is looking at the ones that are completed where you can actually see what the data is. And out of those 1,644, we've seen some incredibly good results which have led to, um, you know, movements towards uh, approvals. We've seen some that simply were what we call non-inferior or not did not meet non-inferiority. That just simply means they weren't good enough. Uh, and so if you start looking at clinical trials as being the basis for what you're doing, you're, you're just gonna end up with a lot of data. Um, it's, it's better to focus on, you know, the publications and, Um, looking at places like the CDC, uh, public health agency, uh, Canada.ca, these types of places, um, that information is always going to be there. Um, Going to clinicaltrials.gov, it's fun. I do it all the time, but I really would not recommend people do it.
1: You know what, Jason, I'm just going to use this baseball analogy right now because I'm watching so much much baseball, but that answer was like a strike them out throw them out type of answer i was like you were just like bing 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 with those numbers that's amazing
2: hey sometimes you got to prepare and that one i prepared for
1: <laughs> okay so last question um do booster shots work
4: that's a good question i guess um so lots of discussion around this right and and you know what can i say there are certain groups where their medical conditions prevent them from making a good response to even two shots of a, a vaccine. You know, if their immune systems are suppressed, if they're on steroids, certain compounds, their cancer patients, their organ transplant patients, you know, their immune systems are already down. So even giving two doses of a vaccine, they may not make antibodies. They may still have some protection, but they may not have optimal protection. And they're the people that have highest risk of having complications. And so. You know, we have done clinical studies, a study out of Toronto, a study in Utah that have looked at giving third doses to people with certain medical conditions, like solid organ transplants, where they've, you know, seen a rise in their antibody levels and and probably, you know, suggestive of, of some increased protection. There are people that are at the extremes of age where we've seen that, you know, again, as they get vaccinated, they make a response, but it wanes pretty quickly over time. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're not protected. Again, you know, We live in Ontario, our long-term care sector was the story of wave one, two, and it was not the story of wave three because of the fact that we immunized them all. And right now in wave four, yes, there's some ripples, but there's not necessarily those giant fires that we've seen before. Um, But, you know, recognizing, again, they're the the people with the most to lose if they do have any waning of their antibodies. And, And again, you know, especially in that elderly, extreme elderly population, there may be a role to boost them up to give them a little bit more antibody response but Outside of those groups, yes, we may see antibodies come down a little bit over time. That's actually normal, right? You know, if we were just making antibodies every moment or of every day to every pathogen we see, you know, in infinitum until the end of our lives, we would be giant blobs of jelly within a, you a know, matter of moments because our blood would be just so thick with antibodies. So there is a point of regulating things and making that memory response so that we can deal with the pathogen when it comes but it's very compartmentalized. It's not, you know, huge levels of antibodies. Um, The, um, you know, we are seeing some people having breakthrough infections and slightly more with time as it goes on. A lot of those studies have troubles though. You're using kind of observation that you're looking into a population and saying, okay, how many of you who are vaccinated are getting COVID? How many of you are unvaccinated getting COVID? Uh, and can we kind of do the same efficacy calculations to say, okay, the vaccine is waiting over time? Well, things change over time, right? You know, in, in the United States, they saw a monster wave of COVID-19 over the last couple of months. And so, yeah, a lot of people got COVID-19 because there's a huge amount of COVID in the community. That can make vaccines look a whole lot less effective because, you know, again, it's different than January in 2020 when they were doing the trials and things were under control. Whereas, you know, everyone has COVID-19 in a given place, you're going to get a whole lot more exposure and it's going to make the vaccine look a little bit less robust. Um, and similarly, testing behavior changes when you get a vaccine, right? You know, the person that had a runny nose that decided to go get tested because they had a runny nose and they were scared of getting COVID-19 because they were back, they weren't vaccinated a year ago. Now that they're fully vaccinated, they have a runny nose, they're going to write it off to something else more. And so even those negative tests, people that don't have COVID-19, the people that come out for testing who are fully vaccinated has fundamentally changed. And so you see a lot of these observational studies out of Qatar, out of California, where they are riddled with issues that are dealing with, not to say that they're to be disregarded, but just to say there's problems with that. The one thing that saliently has come through every trial, whether it be, you know, again, the observational study of California out of Qatar that was released today and others, is that for the vast majority of the population, the protection from ending up in hospital with COVID-19 and dying of COVID-19 is profound and lasts an incredible amount of time. We're seeing 80, 90, even the Qatar study was 96% protection, against hospitalization and debt. So even if you break through, you know, again, that the, the likelihood is even, you know, six months, eight months after getting your vaccine, the likelihood is that you have a mild illness and you'll stay at home and that will be the end of it. And it will not progress further than that. Uh, and so, uh, again, you know, the, the the boosters for everyone is still a very contentious topic. And again, we have to kind of think about this not only on the stage of what's good for us, maybe we'll get a little bit less of the symptomatic infections, but again, the vast majority of us will never end up in an ICU or, or in a hospital with their COVID-19. And we have to think about the rest of the world, right? And, and I think that's the biggest part of the booster campaign is, you know what, we, we've had the good fortune of sitting in Canada, the United States, having rapid access to immunization such that all of us have had access in the last six to eight months. But there are some places in the world where less than 5% of the population is vaccinated. And again, you know, booster campaigns are gonna directly antagonize that. And we really have to sit here and say, what are we trying to do here? Are we just trying to revaccinate ourselves to prevent our risk of getting a runny nose and a sore throat for a few days? Or are we trying to get first doses into people to prevent people from dying and and landing in hospital beds at that point? So, you know, the good news is the the vaccines are still working. They're doing what they should be doing. You're keeping people out of hospital and dying. There is no other therapy we know of. Monoclonal antibodies, this molnipavir compound, uh, the stuff we give in hospital when people get COVID-19. You know, all of that is inferior to having a vaccine in your system prior to getting COVID-19. There's no other effective therapy that is at the level of vaccines in that sense in preventing you from going to hospital or dying. Amen. So our final question of the evening is the
1: famous ivermectin. Mm. Shall I say Joe Rogan? And I'm just going to stop there. But um, maybe... I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what it is, why people think it may work, and maybe get some clarification on it.
2: Sure. Um, ivermectin is an antiparasitic. Um, and what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to help uh, fight off some kind of pathogen. Now, we've seen off-label use in the past. And when it comes to Ivermectin, we've noticed that there's a mechanism that can help to um, you know, stop certain types of viral infection. And the reason it does that is because inside the cell, and this is grade nine biology, you'll remember there's a nucleus, and then you have the cell. Well, in order to get into the nucleus, you need to have help. They're called chaperones, they're proteins that let you get into the nucleus. Ivermectin blocks that. So if you happen to be a virus and you need to get into the nucleus in order for you to be able to cause infection and cause all sorts of trouble, then ivermectin is gonna stop you from doing that. And, you know, we look at the viruses and we say, okay, well, HIV, dengue, West Nile virus. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. Guess which virus doesn't use the nucleus? SARS-CoV-2. Thus, ivermectin does not work. Now, a lot of people have pointed to what is known as an in vitro study. It's actually a Petri plate where they showed that, yes, indeed, the amount of um, virus decreased after ivermectin was used. What they didn't tell you was that if you block off the nucleus in a cell, guess what the cell does? It dies. If you kill the cell, you kill the virus. So basically what you're doing is you're using the ivermectin to kill the cells so that it kills off the virus. And if you happen to take that orally, you're killing the cells that happen to be inside your gastrointestinal tract. As all everyone should realize, if you start to do that, your body responds, not by sending antibodies, but by sending water to dilute the toxin, which is why you have explosive diarrhea. <laughs> that is how ivermectin works and why you should not be using it for SARS-CoV-2.
4: I'll I'll add to Jason and, 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 you know, this is now starting to come out, you know, from the the medical uh, study standpoint is, you know, much of the data that's been thrown around about ivermectin has been based on small observational studies, (laughs) very small randomized control studies. And um, I would uh, ask people to take a look at some recent articles in the BBC and the Guardian really covering some of these high powerful studies that have been kind of showing the benefits you know, one uh, out of Egypt, the Al Ghazar study, where they saw incredible effects like, you know, a 0.1%, the 90% reduction in COVID 19. guess what? When someone got a hold of the actual raw data, there was huge amounts of fraud. They saw copying and pasting, they saw mm-hmm. confidence intervals that couldn't be possible with mathematics. Uh, and the study was actually withdrawn once that, that came to light. Um, There's another study out of Iran that showed very similar issues where, you know, I I think it was like 40 patients when they were doing their iron measurements were exactly the same for every patient. The probability of that happening was like one in a billion chance in that sense. Um, You know, again, so we've had a lot of studies going into predatory journals that have shown effects of ivermectin when they've actually been brought to light by some epidemiologists that have really done an incredible job trying to get to the raw data There's huge holes. And the largest study I know of, uh, you know, which is, you know, McMaster, you know, from our own institute that was done in Brazil, the TOGETHER trial, which is actually a well-designed trial by clinical trialists that do this on a significant basis, you know, day-to-day with big cardiac trials and everything along those lines. You know, they gave ivermectin very early to patients in Brazil. Uh, a good dose to really show it. And, uh, and, you know, thousands of individuals and saw zero benefit amongst people who got ivermectin. So there wasn't even a hint of, of a benefit as compared to placebo, there was zero benefit as compared to placebo, which really does put this to rest and you can't see it in thousands of patients. It's probably not an effective drug
3: long-term. Great answers. Great answers. Thank you guys. I mean, I think, Michelle, one of the things I just comment generally on these, on these types of answers is this is why you do these types of things. And unfortunately, you know, what most people in the general public, you know, they don't have the background sometimes to understand these topics. So the onus is on all of us, right, to communicate, uh, to tell, tell stories in a way that people can understand. And I think everybody here tried to do that tonight. And, and to keep reminding our public that this is a virus. Uh, it's a novel virus that it is rapidly changing. Everything we're talking about may have been a different answer 12 months ago. Uh, it, it's called hypothesis testing. It's it's what we do in science, and it's not things that we're you know trying to change our story as we go along. It's it's what we have to do when we don't understand our our foe. Right, and a diabolical virus is a worthy foe, and so we have to learn as we go. And as Zane and Jason and Candy have mentioned, and and hopefully I have tried to tell you tonight, is that we're constantly adapting to the virus because the virus is adapting usually quicker than humans can respond.
1: Okay, that was great. That was amazing. Um, I'm just gonna wrap it up, but I just wanna say a few things before we hang up. Um, And I think I'm just gonna sort of take um, sort of just what you just said, Rodney. I think one of the hardest things we, we are dealing with, with right now in healthcare is the um, spread of information that is not accurate. And you know, I think we live in a society where you know scientific data is very black and white. If it works with this group of people over a certain period of time, then it's gonna work. And a lot of us, including myself, that have been patients in our healthcare system really rely on a lot of really smart people to be smart in their job, so they can help us live as long as of a life we can. And I think it's time that you know, we do our part to keep sharing information. So it warms my heart when I see doctors and doctors from coast to coast to coast who are taking time on Twitter to get out and actually start talking about what's happening, right? I think that is, is how we really start to influence change. So I just want to thank you each individually differently. So Jason, thank you for everything you're doing. Like all the stuff you do through your show is just so amazing. Um, Rodney, I can't even start to, like, I just feel like every time I see all your posts on Twitter, I'm just like, keep fighting that fight down there. (laughs) Like, and for all the med lab professionals that are down there, Candy, like my think you can't even start from a patient that goes to St. Joe's all the time to just, you know, heading up the association with med lab professionals, like everything you have done during COVID is incredible. And, you know, doc, like, I think just giving you a voice today without being jammed in media where you got to say something in 60 seconds, because I feel that pain, like there's so much more that we can both say when we're out there, but you can't, because when you're talking to media, they give you 60 seconds. And I think this platform today, you know, um, Zane really gave you a chance to kind of say, like, you know what, this is really what's happening, and I I love that we did this tonight. So, so thank you to everybody. Um, you may hear from me again. <laughs> Maybe we do this again in six months, like or a couple of months, and see what's happening if help things change. You know, and hopefully we're in a better position. So I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing a little bit of your brain wisdom tonight, and hopefully this will help save a lot of people and help share the right information
0: so thank you for
4: that
0: the dish is recorded produced and edited in hamilton on the niagara escarpment it's available on apple podcasts google play soundcloud and spotify please let us know if you'd like to add a platform you can reach us anytime at mlpao at mlpao.org all of our advocacy efforts from meetings with the government to media appearances to our social media and to this podcast is to make sure everyone knows medical laboratory professionals are central to healthcare through this pandemic and every single day after. Thank you so much for listening and stay safe.